I've studied the form of comics intimately. What you need is a hobby. The words and pictures, it could be more of an art form. What the fuck are you talking about? I don't know, it's pretty goddamn weird. A guy dresses up like a devil and a blind lawyer, you know? We have to do Aquaman. No one with a lick of sense would watch that show. The word fan actually is a, an abbreviated form of fanatic. And there are some people who fit that category. I believe comics are a last link to an ancient way of passing on history. You can put on a uniform for football, year-round, nobody cares. Basketball, year-round, nobody cares. Put on a Star Trek uniform, people get a case of the giggles. Yeah, hi, somebody told me they make comic books here. That's from Superman? Smallville. You have been trying that Jedi mind shit on me since the eighth grade. It doesn't work. Oh, it works. You guys must read too many comic books or something. People do not masturbate in the DC universe. That was the biggest load of crap I've ever heard. Hello, and welcome back to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality. Presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and I talk about comics, movies, and TV shows. At least in theory. In practice, though, I spend most of my time talking about comics. And so, today, what I wanted to do, just to kind of change things up a little bit, is talk about Star Wars Episode 3, Revenge of the Sith. Now, I talked about The Phantom Menace way back in episode number 99 and then talked about Attack of the Clones in episode 167, so all that's left now is Revenge of the Sith, right? Now, when I talked about the last two prequels, I basically said they're a mixed bag. There are tons of great ideas going on there, and there are at least as many horrible ideas. It'd be nice to think that things could get better with episode 3, but the usual flaws remain, but I'll come back to those later. For now, though, there are some strong points to consider. Episode 3 is as visually powerful as any of its predecessors, and arguably more so. There's just something about Obi-Wan and Anakin locked in lightsaber battle on a volcano planet that just grips the Star Wars fan on a sheer, visceral level. By now, things have changed, irrevocably, in the galaxy. The Separatists are permanently alienated from the Republic. Even if Palpatine was assassinated by the Jedi and a new Chancellor tried to offer peace terms, there's been too much bloodletting by now. Both sides are irretrievably entrenched in their positions, and so there can be no peace. From here on in, there will only be winners and losers. This is the fulfillment of everything Padme warned, uh, warned against back in Attack of the Clones. Suppose a peace treaty of some kind had been offered to the Separatists. Both sides agreed to mutual pacts of non-aggression, is what I'm saying. And look, there are warmongers on both sides. The Republic and the Separatists both had factions in their coalition that would have actually preferred going to war, but left to their own devices, there's a pretty good chance that war could have been averted. Maybe, maybe not. The bottom line here is that war wasn't inevitable in Attack of the Clones, but here in Revenge of the Sith, conquest is all one side or the other can hope for anymore. Now, 
Of course, all of this ignores the fact that the Sith are controlling everything from behind the scenes, but you get the picture. Now, there's an ongoing motif in Revenge of the Sith that relates to secrets being kept from other characters, and how that dishonesty ultimately destroys everything. Love, friendships, marriages, governments, everything is jeopardized by deceit and trickery. For example, Mace Windu outright bluntly fucking says that he doesn't trust Annika. In other scenes, his actions do his talking for him. Anakin's had to put up with being treated like shit ever since he showed up at the Jedi Temple, and by the time Revenge of the Sith gets well underway, Anakin Skywalker is near his breaking point. It doesn't seem to matter how many battles he wins, rescues he makes, or battle campaigns he leads. The Jedi Council will never regard him as an equal. And guys, seriously, how fucking hard would it have really been for Yoda and Mace to invite Anakin over to Dex's diner for lunch sometime over a Bantha burger and some fries? Just shoot the bull for a little while, you know? Hang out, build bridges. That never happened. The Council's reluctance to grant Anakin the status of Jedi Master and, by proxy, a legitimate democratic voice on the Council when they appoint him to their ranks is, guys, I gotta tell you, it's understandable in a lot of ways. But it also speaks to their short-sightedness. Rather than embracing Anakin and working to make him feel accepted and respected, you know, things he made no secret of craving, instead Anakin gets constantly marginalized and neglected. Far from supporting him, and enabling him to fulfill his destiny and working toward a better, shared future, the Jedi Council do everything they can to make Anakin Skywalker feel small and worthless. Their moral failures continue when they ask him to spy on Chancellor Palpatine. Now think about that for a moment. Your family, quote unquote, has asked you to spy on and keep secrets from one of your best friends in life, all because of what looks to you to be nothing more than paranoid delusions and a threat to their hegemony. Bad enough that supposed moral champions like the Jedi Council were this unscrupulous, but the fact that they're dragging Anakin down to their level, I mean, what else was going to happen except that Anakin was going to lash out like he does to Obi-Wan about it? And speaking of Obi-Wan, whatever his failures were or weren't, he at least had some idea of the betrayal he was asking of Anakin when he clarified that it was the Council asking Anakin to spy on Palpatine. I think it's apparent that Obi-Wan wanted to... He wanted to absolve himself of that particular sin. Anakin asks why Obi-Wan is doing this, and Obi-Wan's only answer is that the Council is the one that's doing this. Now, yeah, the scheme is short-lived, as Palpatine was already wise to what the Council wanted, but no matter. The damage has been done. Anakin's trust in the Council had been irreparably harmed. Palpatine played a part in undermining Anakin's trust in them, that much is true, but by and large, the Jedi Council did it to themselves. 
This, again, is Lucas somewhat vilifying the Jedi. Everything that happens to them in Revenge of the Sith is basically, well, the Jedi did it to themselves. Yeah, there's a tragic element of soldiers turning on their leaders and blasting them to pieces, but on a moral level, how did the Jedi really deserve anything more than betrayal by this point? You know? Anakin's always told that he's the chosen one, the future hinges on him, only he can bring balance to the Force, but guys, the only person in the fucking galaxy who seems willing to accept Anakin unconditionally is Palpatine. The Dark Lord of the Sith. And now the members of the Jedi Council want Anakin to spy on the one man who's always been there for him. Again, everybody else attaches terms and conditions to their association with Anakin. What we see happen in Revenge of the Sith is this kid. A kid who's constantly had sunshine blown up his ass one minute, and then been told to sit down, shut up, and grab a seat at the kid's table the next minute, we see that kid finally boil over. He's got real problems, and the only guy who seems at all concerned about Anakin, the person, is the most evil man in the entire galaxy. So, uh, how evil is he exactly? Palpatine officially being revealed as Darth Sidious is arguably the resolution of the entire saga ongoing motif that there's no purely good or purely evil. It's always, guys, I'm just going to be honest with you, it's always confused the fuck right out of me when people say that Star Wars is a, it's a, a simple adventure story. It's cowboys and Indians. The good guys wear white hats. The bad guys wear black hats. Good and evil are clearly recognizable and all that stuff. Now, look, that may have been true superficially of Star Wars, the first movie. But even there, it's only superficial. From The Empire Strikes Back and going forward, we're constantly confronted by heroes with dark sides and villains with heroism. Nothing is what it seems in Star Wars, and it's always boggled my mind that people never remark on that. But... Palpatine being revealed as the Dark Lord of the Sith enhances this theme all the more. Palpatine single-handedly responsible for undermining the Republic, stoking a phony war with the Separatists, and indirectly killing millions of people. But his goal? All he wants is for the Sith to rule the galaxy so that there can be... peace. Now, yeah, his methods suck. There's no way around that. The ends don't justify the means, but when all's said and done, aren't those some kind of admirable ends? As I've said before, positioning the Jedi Council as a bunch of out-of-touch blowhards who got what was coming to them was a ballsy move for Lucas to make. Fans had preconceived notions about the Jedi Order being filled with idealists, dreamers, and heroes. And you know what? Once upon a time, that probably was exactly who they were, but by the time things get going with the Phantom Menace, the Jedi had become corrupt, complacent, and bureaucratic. They were more concerned with staying in the Senate's good graces than they were with rescuing slaves on backwater planets, or intervening in trade blockades of peaceful planets, or wiping out corruption in the Senate, or just whatever. If the Jedi had been on top of their business, 
they would have sent a delegation to the separatists to either talk them into rejoining the republic or lacking that at least establish uh, trying to establish and normalize diplomatic relations specifically to avoid war but that never happened from the start the jedi council or even the jedi in general never even took the, the separatists seriously there's not even an indication that they tried to work out an arrangement with the separatists so that Jedi could patrol and keep the peace in separatist star systems. The Jedi Order had long since sold out to the Republic. And yeah, it's good that the Jedi Council had access to the Republic and its infrastructure to do their work, but at the end of the day, the Republic has jurisdiction. There are limits to what the Republic is legally able to do. But damn it, there shouldn't be for the Jedi. The Force doesn't have jurisdiction. If wrongs need to be righted, the Jedi shouldn't care if it's next door or on the complete other side of the fucking galaxy. Right is right. Wrong is wrong. The Jedi Order's mandate should be righting wrongs wherever they find them. But instead, all the Jedi ever do is worry about what the Senators might think of this, that, and the other. And again, I'm not criticizing that. I'm praising the direction that Lucas took with the Jedi Order because, like I say, it took serious fucking balls to write the Jedi as a bunch of bureaucratic pricks. The Jedi have forsaken their own ideals. The opening fanfare segues into a, a, a piece called Revenge of the Sith, which begins with a version of the Star Wars theme set to a military beat. The militarization of the Jedi translates to the Jedi basically profaning the Force. Instead of using the Force for wisdom and understanding, the Jedi have attempted to transform it into a weapon with which they can conquer their enemies. Qui-Gon Jinn, back in The Phantom Menace, made reference to the will of the Force. Now, if the Force is semi-conscious and is capable of rendering even simplistic moral judgments, what might the will of the Force be for a band of Force users who use the Force as a battering ram to smash their enemies? All this is suggested by this piece of music, and it's certainly supported inside the narrative of the film itself. And again, I have to admire the risks that Lucas is taking here by so clearly positioning the Jedi as antagonists when, honestly, nobody would have held it against them if he played them as virtuous, morally superior heroes like we were all subconsciously expecting. But there's a lot more awesome about episode 3 than just the character dynamics. A good example of what I mean, just in terms of other stuff, there's an amazingly powerful scene in the middle of the film where Anakin hangs out in the Jedi Council chamber all by himself and stares out across the cityscape to Padme's apartment. And unbeknownst to him, She's staring right back. The scene plays out mostly in silence, and so the emotion and the power of everything, it's all communicated through visuals and the music. Eventually, Anakin realizes that his only hope to save Padme is to save Palpatine. He realizes what rescuing uh, Palpatine is going to require him to do. He's going to have to take sides against the Jedi, People are gonna get hurt, possibly killed. This is the only family he really has anymore. They're all he really has in the galaxy, but Padme's life is at stake. So, 
in the end, as painful as it might be for Anakin, it's a no-brainer. He rides off to rescue Palpatine and kill some Jedi. All that and more is communicated through that scene, and it's just amazingly powerful. Something else to consider is the Jedi Code. Attack of the Clones revealed that the Jedi aren't allowed to love. And on the surface, that seems pretty heartless. Love is probably the defining human characteristic. We give it, we take it, we make it, we write songs about it. Love has inspired mankind to the heights of greatness. So why the fuck would the Jedi prohibit love? Well, Revenge of the Sith shows us the answer. As many wonderful things have come out of love, some really dark shit has happened too. Betrayal, deceit, bloodshed, murder, everything. At certain times, in certain contexts, love can drive someone to kill. Anakin forsakes everything to protect Padme. He abandons all of it to save something that may not even actually need saving. And in the end, he's gonna lose it no matter what because Padme isn't gonna live forever, guys. The Sith use Anakin's best attributes against him. Love, something that should be positive and virtuous, damns the entire galaxy into a dic uh, dictatorship led by the personification of all evil. The Sith used love to create death. And guys, if that's not evil, I don't know what is. It's only when Padme dies that we realize on some level that the Jedi had it right all along. They were right to emotionally stunt all the Jedi that they trained and make them incapable of falling in love. The Council knew damn good and well what would happen if a Jedi was allowed to fall in love. A major part just to kind of move on to other things. A major part of Anakin turning to the dark side includes him killing young Jedi children in the Jedi Temple. And this is where we get into some kind of tricky interpretive difficulties. George Lucas envisioned Anakin giving into the dark side to be a fundamentally horrifying thing. We're not supposed to cheer Anakin on. Yeah, the Jedi the Jedi Council were a bunch of self-centered cocks, and yeah, they only cared about themselves, and yeah, Anakin had a good reason for resenting the Jedi Council. And let's face it, Anakin killing the Jedi Council himself might be seen as them getting what was coming to him. It just doesn't have the same dramatic and emotional weight to it if Anakin's transition to evil shows him killing people who on some level or another had it coming who only got what they deserved. So what Lucas needed to do was show Anakin kill someone who didn't deserve it. Anakin is intentionally giving in to the dark side, so his actions have to be completely unjust. Anakin killing the council, that's an extreme solution to an extreme problem, but I wouldn't exactly call that unjust under the circumstances. So instead, <clears throat> Anakin is shown to kill children. And as I say, that leads into some interpretive difficulties because guys, I don't think Lucas originally intended to show Anakin kill children. He needed to show that Anakin is evil now. 
But I really don't think he originally set out to show Anakin become evil by murdering innocent children. But that's the hand he was dealt. So he played it. But I'm gonna go out on a limb and give you guys a little conspiracy theory. I'm gonna suggest to you that Lucas originally intended someone else to die on Anakin's journey to the dark side. Basically, I think George Lucas put pen to paper for the episode one script, believing that someday he would show as Anakin's sacrificial lamb to illustrate Anakin's path to the dark side. Jar Jar Binks. I think Lucas believed that wide audiences would embrace and fall in love with Jar Jar. <clears throat> I think Lucas thought that audiences would laugh at Jar Jar's antics and cheer for his victories. My suspicion is that Lucas believed that audiences would take Jar Jar close to their hearts. And I think Lucas was planning for audiences to be completely fucking horrified when Anakin chops Jar Jar into tiny pieces as part of his introduction to the dark side. Audiences wouldn't forgive Anakin for that. They can understand why he destroyed an entire village of Tusken Raiders back in Episode 2. They can sympathize with him for killing Count Dooku in cold blood at the beginning of Episode 3. Shit, they can probably even relate to Anakin having a huge mat on against the entire Jedi Council, but killing Jar Jar would have been the act of objective, unforgivable evil that proves Anakin isn't kidding around. He really is serious about embracing the dark side. But obviously things went another way. Much of the audience hated Jar Jar. They found him annoying, grating, and too silly for Star Wars. Instead of becoming the breakout character of the prequels, Jar Jar came to symbolize everything that was wrong with the Phantom Menace. For better or worse, right or wrong, Jar Jar is the emblem of every single problem Episode One as a film has. Under those circumstances, Lucas knew that he couldn't show Anakin killing Jar Jar. Audiences wouldn't cry if Anakin killed Jar Jar. Audiences would probably stomp and cheer and beg Anakin to kill Jar Jar slowly and make it really excruciating. This isn't about whether or not Jar Jar is an annoying character. It's about the fact that Jar Jar pissed off most audiences and they wouldn't have been a bit sorry to see him die, especially at Anakin's hand. Well, obviously that isn't the reaction that Lucas was going for. The death of Jar Jar at Anakin's hands was meant to be a tragedy, an act of barbaric moral evil that would turn the audience against Anakin. That's what Lucas needed, and suddenly he discovered that Jar Jar couldn't fill he couldn't fulfill that role anymore. Now, a lot of vocal prequel bashers take credit for Jar Jar's diminished roles in Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. And it is true, Jar Jar has a bit part in Attack of the Clones, and he's barely seen in, Re in Revenge of the Sith at all. And these prequel bashers believe they're to credit for Jar Jar's smaller role. And as it happens... I think they're not completely wrong. I think they're right in the big picture. Not for the reasons they think, but they're still right. 
These are the true believers, the people who would have jumped for joy to see Anakin skewering Jar Jar into a thousand pieces. They would have interpreted Jar Jar's death as a personal victory of their own, rather than Anakin Skywalker sacrificing the last bit of his soul on his journey into, into darkness. And so because of that, Lucas had no choice but to scrap Jar Jar as Anakin's sacrificial lamb. And I think he made that decision early on. Once he realized that Jar Jar would no longer be able to function as Anakin's greatest betrayal, well, Lucas had no real other use for him. And I think that's why Jar Jar has a smaller role in Episodes 2 and 3. In fact, you could view the small amount of participation that Jar Jar does have in Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith kind of as a middle finger from Lucas. It isn't that the haters won, necessarily, because if they'd won, Jar Jar wouldn't have been in the movies at all. Instead, his continued presence in those movies is probably an, an intentional act of antagonism on Lucas's part toward those prequel haters. No, Lucas couldn't use Jar Jar as much as he originally wanted, but not killing Jar Jar is maybe the better punishment for those loud, angry prequel bashers. Not that I'm defending Jar Jar, I think he's annoying as fuck, but I'm just trying to explain what I think George's thought processes might have been. Anyway, as far as artsy-fartsy symbolism's concerned, for the first time we see Jedi Council members attending meetings by way of hologram, and these are very ghostly-looking holograms. One might interpret this as kind of visually foreshadowing their eventual slaughter. As with the other two prequels, though, it's not all smooth sailing. Or even mostly smooth sailing. In terms of cinematography, George must have wanted to compete with Lord of the Rings or something because the camera moves through almost every scene of Revenge of the Sith. Now, for episodes one and two, the camera mostly stayed in one fixed spot. There really weren't any unmotivated camera moves, but here in episode 3, it's like Lucas is determined to move the camera as much as he can to show off more of the worlds that he's created. And the results are actually pretty impressive, I think. Through the, enti through the entire run of the prequels, one common gripe that a lot of fans had was that Rick McCallum was basically George's yes man. And they base this on the fact that McCallum is credited as the executive producer of the trilogy. And yet, he's never shown in any documentary to throw in any kind of creative input. He basically just does whatever Lucas tells him to do. Meanwhile, Gary Kurtz, which is to say the executive producer of Star Wars and, and Empire, routinely had some level of creative influence over the direction of those two films. One could fairly say that he's a major factor in those two films, Star Wars and Empire, those two films' creative success. And where I'm going with all of this is comparing Rick McCallum to Gary Kurtz usually reflects poorly on McCallum. And this is held as conventional wisdom all through the fan base. Now, I'll admit that it's pretty unfortunate that Kurtz and McCallum are both credited as 
executive producer because it creates a kind of false equivalence between their two roles. As it happens, though, that job title isn't really descriptive of either man's job. Gary Kurtz is what is traditionally known as supervising producer. This type of producer has a considerable amount of creative input on the script and possibly other aspects of film production. As a creative force in his own right, this was an ideal role for Gary Kurtz to be in. Rick McCallum, though, served as what's commonly known as a line producer. And this position basically manages the day-to-day -day operations for a film production. He hires staff for the various departments, and McCallum also branched into associate producer because he also ran the day-to-day -day operations as well as uh, field producer because McCallum did location scouting and on-location production. So what's my point? The point is that Kurtz was hired to give creative input into Star Wars and Empire. McCallum's job was to manage the production of the prequels and keep them on schedule and on budget. What I'm saying is that Gary Kurtz's job has nothing in common with Rick McCallum's job, but you really wouldn't think so because of the fact that they're both credited as executive producer rather than more accurate credits. And it's, it's unfortunate, but that's how things are. And I mention it because I'm sick and fucking tired of people shit-talking Rick McCallum as though he did or didn't do something that he should or shouldn't have done. Kurtz did his job masterfully. McCallum did his own job masterfully, but the two men served very different roles at Lucasfilm, and I don't think that's open to debate. Now, I guess in matters related to criticism, even so, here once again we get bizarre, non-sequitur dialogue and music from uh, previous films tracked into Revenge of the Sith. On top of all that, Ben Burtt's sound mixing is once again a fucking abortion. Music is all too often obnoxiously drowned out by way over-the-top sound effects. A good example of what I'm talking about is the opening space battle where Anakin and Obi-Wan's ships fly through the Battle of Coruscant. Now, you're hard-pressed to even hear the music at different points in the opening uh, space battle because entire chunks of that sequence have sound effects with volume, the volume just cranked way too high. On top of that, the scene where Anakin watches Mace Windu and Chancellor Palpatine talk shit to each other has the worst replacement dialogue recording I've ever heard in a major motion picture. How can dialogue that's whispered drown out music? I don't know, but blame Ben Burt. In terms of other stuff, it's been a staple of Star Wars films, really, from the beginning to transition from one scene to another, using wipes. <clears throat> And this harkens back to the serial roots of Star Wars. And certainly there are wipes in Revenge of the Sith, but the problem is that they're mostly cheesy wipes like you'd probably find in Windows Live Movie Maker, and just kind of cheesy programs like that. 
I don't think there's so much as one traditional wipe to be found anywhere in Revenge of the Sith. Apart from that stuff, I think I've gone a little easy on George Lucas's writing and pacing up to this point in the saga. Up to now, I haven't really busted his balls too much about this or that, or what should have happened in whichever movie or anything like that, but guys, that's, that's off the table here. One of the mysteries that Lucas promised to resolve was that whole vanishing Jedi thing from the original trilogy. When a Jedi dies in the original trilogy, <clears throat> his body vanishes. But when they die in the prequels, their bodies remain behind. That's not a contradiction, or so Lucas told us. He said that we'd find out why that happens in the original trilogy. And to be fair, we do. But we don't find out in Revenge of the Sith as a film. If you want the answer for why some Jedi disappear and some Jedi don't when they die, you pretty much have to read the Revenge of the Sith novelization. Now, look, I understand that Lucas had a shitload of story to tell in Episode 3. I get that. But at the same time, nobody forced him to waste time in Episodes 1 and 2 with meaningless bullshit trivia. He could have paced his story out better if he'd actually tried. But here's the thing. George Lucas pretty much made the entire Star Wars saga up as he went along. He can say whatever he wants to the contrary, but I'm never going to believe it. There were too many major story changes for me to ever think that he had everything planned out since 1974 or whenever he supposedly wrote those bullshit scripts. I don't buy it. Now, he could use that excuse to his advantage with the original trilogy since the story could go wherever he wanted it to go and nobody would ever know the difference, but he really couldn't do that with the prequels. Nobody knew how the prequels would start necessarily, but we all we all knew where the prequels were would end. There was never any mystery about that. Lucas improvised his way through the entire original trilogy, but he's gonna ha he was always going to have to be a lot more careful with the prequels because he had a specific story that most people already knew the basic outlines of, and he only had three movies to tell that story. Had Lucas at least outlined the prequels before setting pen to paper on the script for The Phantom Menace, I personally think that certain things would have been paced out more effectively. Count Dooku might have been seen or at least mentioned in episode one, for example, and he might have been able to, Lucas might have been able to better develop the Separatists as real characters as opposed to almost faceless villains. But he didn't do those things, and so as a result, elements of Anakin's descent into the dark side in Revenge of the Sith are kind of redundant considering what we saw in Attack of the Clones. Specifically, Anakin wiping out that entire village of Sand People ultimately had little or no bearing on Episode 3. And the reason for that is because it was a passing element of Attack of the Clones. It was mentioned, and then it was forgotten. 
not only by Lucas, but by the audience as well. And so because of that, Lucas had kind of set up a situation where Anakin once again has to kill a helpless enemy at the beginning of Revenge of the Sith, which is pretty much the only reason Count Dooku didn't have a larger role to play in the story. It's also the only reason that General Grievous was created at all. There needed to be a villain for the heroes to chase across the galaxy, and Dooku needed to be Anakin's sacrificial lamb at the beginning of Revenge of the Sith. And so that meant that Lucas had to develop a new villain. That villain was General Grievous. Now, I can't really prove this, but I suspect that Lucas intended to show Anakin slowly slide to the dark side in Revenge of the Sith, but even with the events of, of Attack of the Clones in mind, there's no clear reward for Anakin to give in to the dark side. It's not enough that the dark side is seductive. Anakin needs to benefit in some tangible way from turning to the dark side. Anakin needs to gain something by switching over uh, to the dark side. And, and in turn, the dark side has to offer Anakin the means to do whatever it is that he needs to do. Both of those things need to happen. So originally, I believe that Lucas made the decision to have Anakin kill Dooku much later on in Revenge of the Sith, maybe about two-thirds of the way through it. But there again, the pacing is off because there's nothing at the start of the film to push Anakin toward the dark side. So I think that Lucas changed his plan again to have Anakin kill Dooku at the beginning of Episode 3. But like I say, there still needs to be a villain for the heroes to, to chase around later on in the movie. And so because of that, Lucas created General Grievous. Simply put... The events of The Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones just aren't strong enough in and of themselves to justify Anakin turning to evil. So, in effect, Revenge of the Sith can be viewed kind of as a standalone piece. This is all that anybody really needs to see for backstory on the original trilogy. And something tells me that isn't quite the scenario that Lucas intended when he first began developing the prequels, but damned if that's not the final outcome. And speaking of changes, Palpatine was seen in Attack of the Clones totally the worse for wear. His skin was sagging, it was discolored, and it even appeared to be rotting a little bit. Now, you could interpret that as all those years of using the dark side were sort of melting his physical form in some way. His body was being eaten alive by the corrosive power of the dark side. But at the start of Revenge of the Sith, Palpatine looks pretty healthy. Uh, he's an old man, that much is true, but he otherwise looks pretty good for his age. And then, and then, Palpatine has his big showdown with Mace Windu and his face melts. So basically, Lucas changed his vision again, between episodes two and three, and really didn't bother considering how this change affects, or maybe even destroys, what's come before. One day, he had what he considered to be a superior idea. He ran with it, 
and he didn't think about the consequences. In case I'm not being clear about any of this, the problem isn't George Lucas, the director. The problem is George Lucas, the writer. I firmly believe nobody could have done a better job directing the prequels. But I truly do believe that anybody, God help us, anybody, could have done a better job of writing scenes that convey what Lucas needed to communicate to the audience without all those non-sequitur lines and clunky deliveries. I hate to join the chorus of people who think Lucas could have and should have found a writer to help him refine and develop his ideas, but I think history's spoken pretty clearly on this. I truly can't fault or, or find fault with very much of episodes one through three when it comes to style, cinematography, themes, action set pieces, and all that stuff. But the substance leaves a lot to be desired. To me, it's not a matter of saying that the prequels are totally awesome or they're totally shit. There's a lot of good and a lot of bad in them. They're not just one or the other. And in the long run, that's what hurts the most, because we'd all spent at least a little bit of time wondering what Darth Vader's fall to the dark side might be like. Lucas found a very impressive style to tell that story, but unfortunately, his ability to tell that story remains very much in doubt. Still, as I've said before, I don't view George's absence from this new Star Wars trilogy to be a magic bullet guaranteed to make a perfect final product. George Lucas masterminded Star Wars, which is to say the first movie, and that film is awesome. His fingerprints are all over it, and we all seem to love that. By way of contrast, Lucas had virtually no involvement whatsoever with the Holiday Special, and even admirers of the Holiday Special only appreciate it for kitsch value. As it goes for The Force Awakens, to me, it's not better without George's involvement. I'm not saying it would be better with George's involvement, but George's absence doesn't seem to have done that movie any favors. Still, when it comes to the prequels, I truly don't think it's arguable that Lucas should have outlined the story way in advance and then given Frank Darabont, or hell, anybody, a call before starting his rough draft for each film's script. At the same time, I've always doubted that Lucas truly intended to make the prequels to begin with. I can buy into the idea that he created a vague outline before starting work on the first Star Wars movie from 1977, as he wanted to know where each of these characters originated from in broad strokes. But I, I think that's pretty much it. I don't think he ever really meant to create the prequels. And if you look at the basic story there, it's hard to think of ways to, to pace that shit out in a way that effectively tells the story across three movies. Lucas has said that only two things happen in The Phantom Menace that are of any consequence to the larger story. Number one, Anakin leaves his mother. And number two, cha uh, Chancellor, uh, or, or rather, Senator Palpatine becomes Chancellor of the Republic. Everything else in The Phantom Menace had to be invented out of whole cloth. Jar Jar, the pod race, 
Anakin getting initially rejected by the Jedi Council, the Battle of Naboo, all that shit had to be invented to pad out Episode One's runtime. As for Attack of the Clones, Anakin loses his mom, and Palpatine attains absolute power. Those are the main issues of Episode 2, so everything to do with Kamino, Geonosis, Jango Fett, the Separatists, and all that other bullshit is just padding for Attack of the Clones. And so, that leaves something like 80% of the backstory that Lucas created ages ago to get crammed into Revenge of the Sith, and I think the evidence pretty clearly shows that it doesn't completely work. And so, my position is that Lucas could have improved a bad situation had he just outlined each movie ahead of time, you know? Found a writer or two so that he'd know where the story's supposed to go in every movie. But as it stands, he made the whole damn thing up as he went along, and guys, I think the final product really suffers because of that. And so, when all's said and done, the prequels did a lot of things really well. Lucas played with and explored themes that I don't think he's ever gotten much credit for. He completely reinvented the way that we look at the original trilogy, for better or for worse. John Williams developed some amazing new compositions for each film's score, whether or not those compositions were actually used in the film. And he pushed digital filmmaking decades of where it had been up to that point. But at the same time, the prequels as films are still pretty weak products. It's all well and good that Lucas addressed so many complex themes, but Sometimes, all you really want is a fun scene to watch, and as it happens, there just aren't as many of those in the prequels as one might want there to be. <sighs> anyway. So there you go. Between episodes 99 and 167 and this episode, now you've heard basically everything that I have to say about the prequels for better or for worse. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. My name is Michael Bailey, and I am a terrible geek. I don't watch Doctor Who, I don't care for anime, I've never seen any of the Harry Potter films, much less read the books. I like Star Wars and Star Trek okay, but I've never really ventured far into the extended universes of either property. Hell, I have never even watched a single episode of The Walking Dead. So what do I like? Comic books. I have been reading and collecting comic books since 1987, and I have been a fan of superheroes for as long as I can remember. Some would consider this a hobby, but I prefer to look at it as what it truly is, a crippling addiction that I may never recover from. To deal with this borderline personality disorder, I started a podcast in 2007 called Views from the Long Walks. Every two weeks, or so, depending on real life, I pick a particular series, or issue, or character, or whatever to talk about, and then I... Well, well, I talk about them, because that's kind of the point of a podcast. Sometimes I'm alone. 
Sometimes I have a guest, like my semi-regular co-host, the Irredeemable Shag, or my other semi-regular co-host, Thomas DJ, or with another friend from the podcasting world. The show is located at www.viewsfromalongbox.com, and from there you can find the iTunes link, the email address, as well as the backlog of episodes. Views from the Long Box. A podcast about comics or a desperate cry for help? You decide. Every other Tuesday, or so, depending on real life, at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com. Hey, Vato, man, check your mail. Because your new mail is smart enough and good enough and doggone it, people like you. That's why they send you mail. Read the mail! Read the mail! Read the mail! You've got mail. (laughs) You have 937 messages, all of which are marked urgent. I'm back now, and I've got a little bit of feed. Well, I can't really say feedback. I've got a little bit of feed forward that I need to go through here. And guys, just full disclosure here, I just uh, may as well get the unpleasant stuff out of the way up front, all right? I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie to any of you. I'm kind of in a fucking cranky mood today because it's November, and as some of you may remember in last week's episode, I went on and on and at really a great length about how much November not always sucks, but how often, at least, that it sucked. And so far, this November is shaping up to be a real winner, let me tell you. So, anyway, that's kind of setting the table for, I don't know, like a disclaimer, I guess. Basically, what I need to make clear to all of you is I'm sure I'm going to get more feed forward related to Revenge of the Sith, but the simple fact of the matter is, I just want, I'm just, like I said, I'm just kind of in a fucking cranky mood, and it's either this or throw a tantrum, and anyway, so I decided to be sort of productive with this energy that I've got, and I don't know, maybe something good can come, can come from it, so, um, I'm, like I say, I'm sure I'm going to get more feed forward in the future, but, you know, I'm I'm just going to go ahead and and call it a day with it right now. For those of you who don't know, I basically posted on the Trennis Magnus Punches Reality Facebook page that if you want to, what you can do is send in some feed forward, you know, just basically your thoughts related to Revenge of the Sith, and then I'd read them in this episode, and you can get, I don't know, hot takes a little bit faster, perhaps. So... Anyway, the best laid plans of mice and men, as I say, really fucking cranky mood, and and this is probably the most productive thing, shall we say, that I could be doing right now, so this is what I choose to be doing right now. So if you send some feed forward in the future that isn't going to get mentioned in this this little uh, segment I'm going through right now, I'm sorry. I'm going to find a way to work that into some future episode, but for right now, basically, I'm just calling it a day after just the one thing that I did get. So... And speaking of the one piece of feed forward that did come through in the last 24 hours, uh, before I decided, you know what, fuck it, I'm just going to do it live. Um, this feed, this feed forward is actually coming from 
my old friend Doug Meacham, and he actually needs to get kind of a double shout out here. Number one, obviously, because he he's sending in some feed forward, as I've gone to pains at this point to explain. The other thing is, um, he also sent in a donation. And so, the arrangement, like the official understanding that Doug and I have with one another, is that I'm going to give him a shout out when he sends in a donation, but I'm not going to say how much the donation was. He's made it pretty clear to me that that's the way he wants it. And so, that's the way we're going to be doing it. And so, pretty much, it's that simple. So, first of all, let me just say, thank you, Doug. I really appreciate you taking the time and the expense of sending in a donation. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, it's... The holidays, let's face it, Christmas is coming up. And so, you know, I already kind of know what I'm going to be putting your donation towards. So... Uh, you've actually simplified things here more than you might know. So thank you very much, Doug. I appreciate you taking the time to do that, like I say. And for the rest of you, if you want to send in a donation for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, or really for any of the Two True Freaks podcast network, just listen to the end credits because you'll get instructions on how to do so during the end credits and stuff. So anyway, <clears throat> title of this feed forward is episode 227. Revenge of the Sith, and Doug Meacham writes, Greetings, Your Excellency. First off, I'd like to tell you how excited I am that you are finally covering what's probably my favorite film in the Star Wars saga. I'm going to put your email on pause and say, like, dude, like, don't take this as me, you know, criticizing or making fun or anything like that, but seriously? Revenge of the Sith is your favorite? I mean, maybe it's kind of obvious to say it, but... I'm kind of at a loss. Like, I love Star Wars 77, and I love Empire, right? And I regard them as being equally good overall, but there are certain things that I love about Star Wars 77 that you can find only in Star Wars 77. There are things that I love about Empire, and you can find them only in Empire. And so, basically, the way I look at it is it sort of comes out in the wash, you know, I like them just about equally. You know, like whatever difference there is is pretty negligible and it's almost not even worth bothering with. So, you know, I just say that my favorite Star Wars movie is actually two separate Star Wars movies. And I get to say that because I get to make my own rules. It's awesome being me. What can I tell you? But, you know, what, you know, it's been like 12 years since Revenge of the Sith came out. So, you know, I, God only knows how many, uh, Star Wars ranking lists I've ever seen, like, what are your favorite movies in order of preference? You know, we've all seen those. Uh, you know what? Maybe I'm just suffering from a really crap memory here, but I don't think I've seen Revenge of the Sith at, uh, on top of anybody's list before. So that's an interesting choice. And again, Doug, not criticizing or making fun or anything like that. I'm just saying that's kind of an original choice. You know, I mean, I think I would be slightly more shocked if somebody said The Phantom Menace, but, you know, still, Revenge of the Sith, I mean, it's just... The way that... I, I guess the reason I find that surprising is Revenge of the Sith, admittedly, it does seem to be the prequel that people seem to enjoy the most. I'll give it that much. But, you know, my... My sense of where Revenge of the Sith stands with uh, the fandom 
is that there are people out there who they kind of like it. There are people out there who reluctantly tolerate it. And then there are people out there who just fucking hate it. You know, so this is an uh, a kind of original choice. And, so, and again, in case I, I'm not making it clear, I'm not I'm not setting you up to like make fun or anything like that. I'm just saying, again, this is well, it's just kind of an interesting choice. So anyway, kudos to you. It's because my favorite character gets his most screen time in it. And that character is Palpatine. I admit that when I first saw the film in, in the theater, I was seeing it for the same reason all the other diehard fans were. To see how Anakin becomes Darth Vader. I'm going to put this on pause and say, you know, it is kind of funny. You know, since you mentioned it, it is kind of funny that Revenge of the Sith, it, if you think about it just as a completed film, this is really all anybody ever really wanted from the prequels to begin with. Like, if you just picked up, uh, I don't know, like the very beginning of episode one, that was the beginning of Revenge of the Sith. And basically Revenge of the Sith is spread out over three separate movies. I think people would have, you know, people might have actually enjoyed the prequels a little bit more, you know, um, the way that it, the way that it, that things seem to have turned out is that Revenge of the Sith is, is regarded as the most essential of the prequels. And Doug, I'm pretty sure that you've heard of the Machete Order, where people basically watch five of the Star Wars movies, which is to say episodes uh, two and three, then Star Wars 77, Empire and Return of the Jedi. And the shtick behind all of this is basically to say that you don't really need episode one. You just don't in terms of, you know, what it contributes to the overall story. Basically, nothing of any significant consequence really gets set up or established or set down or whatever else in The Phantom Menace. Now, that's that's a position that I neither agree nor disagree with. I'm just saying that I'm sure you've probably heard of the Machete Order. But some people have actually taken this a little bit further. And Doug, I honestly don't know if you know about this. But there are some people out there who basically have as their canon the original trilogy – and they'll maybe throw in uh, Revenge of the Sith. So it's like uber machete order, you know? And I don't know. I mean, I, I've just always thought that was kind of a weird way to watch the prequels. But, you know, bear in mind, Doug, I'm the guy that, you know, when it comes to the prequels, I'm kind of of the opinion that the trailers really are all you need to see of the prequels. I mean, basically, it's enough to give you the flavor of what happens in the prequels, but it's like the more specific with it you get, I don't know. It, it's just like something gets lost, you know, maybe some things are just better left to the imagination. And, you know, the more the time goes on, the more I can't help thinking, you know, maybe that's what the, maybe that's what's going on with the prequels. You know, maybe we were better off, only getting sort of hints and glimpses of things, you know, but without really getting the the blood and guts of the story, you know, because it doesn't seem like George Lucas won very many friends or influenced very many people in making the prequels. And so I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you disagree, by the way, just please do right in. I'd, I'd love to hear what you think. But, you know, I, I sometimes think that, you know, 
Lucas, whether he's been treated fairly or whether he's been treated unfairly, I think it would be safe to say that the movies that he wanted to make were not exactly what a huge chunk of the fan base actually wanted. And so, I don't know. I mean, maybe maybe all of like our collective ideas of what the prequels ought to be, maybe there's no movie that could have possibly satisfied us. I don't know. I, th- I think there's actually a lot to that thesis, you know. I'm not trying to get all people versus George Lucas here or anything, but I, I do think there's something to that idea that there's literally no movie George Lucas is capable of making that would have satisfied – fuck, not e- we're not even talking about everybody. We're, we're way past that. I don't think there's a movie that George Lucas could have made or a trilogy that George Lucas could have made that would have satisfied even 50% of his existing fan base. I just don't think it could have happened. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think it's possible. So anyway, get back into Doug's email, though, he writes. But after seeing it and being blown away by by Ian McDermott's performance, I became a fan of Emperor Palpatine. I'm putting your your email here right back on pause, Doug, and I'm just going to say that, you know, I I pretty much agree with you. You know, Palpatine was one of those characters that I understand, or at least I think I understand, what Lucas was going for in The Phantom Menace and Attack of the Clones by giving Palpatine relatively little screen time. I mean, like, if, if records be checked, you'd be surprised how little screen time he actually has in those two movies. And I get the idea that, you know, there were, there were certain... Basically, what he wanted to do was for this to make more sense on the rewatch, you know, that maybe... If you're just totally unfamiliar with the Star Wars saga and you watch uh, episodes one, two, and three, by the time you get to episode three, you're starting to wonder, holy shit, he was the bad guy all along? Shit, I need to go back and rewatch the other ones and, you know, see how this was ever hinted at. And indeed, I think it was hinted at very cleverly, in fact. But, you know, this is one of those things that because that seemed to be what Lucas was going for, the character of Palpatine, I think, did – he was a little bit unnecessarily diminished in Episodes 1 and 2. And so and, – and I think the same is even more true, really, of Darth Sidious. Now, I recognize that, yes, they are the same character, but the audience isn't really aware of that until Episode 3, you know? And so up to then, what they were supposed to believe is that Palpatine and Sidious are two separate people – executing two separate agendas and when it all coalesces in revenge of the sith i mean yeah i think it does make palpatine's participation in episodes one and two a little bit more enjoyable but the the price that we pay for that is that palpatine as a character doesn't necessarily get the development that i would have liked or at least the screen time that i might have liked him to get back in episodes one and two but whenever you get into Revenge of the Sith, all of that goes out the window because I'm like you. I'm not. I mean, I'm not going to say that that Revenge of the Sith is Palpatine's movie because obviously it's not. It's Anakin's. But you know, at the same time, there's just no denying he's got more screen time in Revenge of the Sith than any of the other Star Wars movies. And I guess the thing that I like about that is. It basically gives us uh, a chance to get to know Palpatine a little bit, you know, 
And, you know, McDermott's performance, especially in Revenge of the Sith, is just so spine tingling. It's it's at the same time, it, it's a little bit creepy, but at the same time, it's also kind of captivating, too. You know, and it's he just strikes just the right balance, you know. And I honestly don't think, now that I'm trying to remember it all now, I honestly don't think I talked too much about McDermott in the main part of this episode that you're hearing right now when I was going through uh, Revenge of the Sith. I honestly don't think I talked all that much about uh, McDermott specifically, you know. And I think he was very much not exactly marking time or anything, but I think he was there in the Phantom Menace and, you know, again, not earning a paycheck necessarily, but he's not necessarily giving this his all, you know? I mean, he does, again, I mean, there's no way to say it without sounding a little bit disrespectful, but I almost want to say it's almost like he's, he's on autopilot in the Phantom Menace and a little bit less so. I'll give him that a little bit less so in Attack of the Clones, you know? But holy shit, in Revenge of the Sith, he's on fire in pretty much every scene, you know? And it's it's just a really... I mean, I'm not... As you probably know, Doug, I'm not exactly like an acting guy to begin with anyway. But, you know, even to kind of like a uh, an acting numbnuts like me, McDermott's performance in Revenge of the Sith really is a, 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 a significant mark above you know what i mean so anyway so all of this is a long way of saying i agree with you so anyway uh, doug continues his email with i'm a sucker for great villains especially the cliched mustache twirling types probably because how they relish being in the role and how much fun they have with it and that is what ian does with the character in this film more so after he transforms into emperor palpatine and i'd say more so than any scene in Return of the Jedi. I'm going to put your email back on pause, Doug, and say, you know, yeah, I think there's a lot to that. I mean, you know, before really, you know, getting invested in the prequels and whatnot, I mean, my my recollection of, uh, of uh, the Emperor from Return of the Jedi was that I don't want to go so far as to say, like, he was a, he, he was a cartoon character, but this was not a dense, layered, nuanced, textured character, you know, at least not in Return of the Jedi. And I would say that, you know, by the time credits roll for the prequels, Palpatine isn't exactly a textured, layered, nuanced character in, in, in the prequels either. But the difference is there's just because you spent at this point three movies with the guy and you've been following his movements and, and all of that, it's. Somehow the character just becomes a little bit more real, in a way. You know what I mean? The character is... There's just a gravitas that the Emperor, as we saw him in Return of the Jedi, doesn't have. But which he gains, I would say, in the prequels. So I guess there is one definite upshot of the prequels that it gave a little bit more depth and uh, personality to the Emperor, you know, whereas in Return of the Return of the Jedi, he's kind of this, wah, 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 you know, bad guy, you know, almost chewing the scenery at times. Whereas in Revenge of the Sith, yeah, he's still the most evil guy in the whole universe, but 
there's he, there's still a lot of there's a humanity there that the character just didn't have before. You know what I mean? So anyway, that's just my reference point, though. So Doug continues by saying, I know the scene is made fun of sometimes, but my favorite one with him is when he attacks Mace Windu with force lightning. He delivers these cheesy lines, but it works because he's so good at it. And I'm going to put your email on pause and say, yeah, you know, that that sort of golem moment that he has in episode three. No, no, you will die. You know, that bit, you know, like you like, as you say, with the uh, with the uh, force lightning and whatnot. I mean, honestly, that was almost the jump the shark moment for me in the movie. I mean, because first off, I can I can buy that. You know, Palpatine, as he's the Dark Lord of the Sith, odds are he knows how to use a lightsaber. So, okay, I buy that. And I can also buy that, you know, he's, at this point, I mean, with Anakin, he's teetering on the very brink of the dark side, and Palpatine's picking up on that. You know, I mean, Anakin is tipping the balance of the Force towards the dark side, and the way I've always viewed basically that whole showdown that Palpatine has with Mace Windu, Palpatine is pretty much drunk on the power that, he, that he's gaining because Anakin is slowly transitioning to the dark side. But, you know, you have all of these CGI cartwheels and backflips and all that stuff, and at different points in, in, in the lightsaber duel with Mace Windu, Palpatine makes these just kind of goofy faces, you know, and it's like, what the fuck is that up? You know, so I don't know. I don't know what that's about. But then you get to that moment where Palpatine, it's like he's way over the top. You know, no, no, you will die, you know. And it's kind of like I said with The Phantom Menace. I mean, there's what I think Lucas was intending for us to uh, take from, from that bit. And then there's how wide audiences interpreted it, you know? What Lucas, like I say, what I think Lucas wanted us to do is for us to infer that Palpatine is drunk on the dark side at this point. But I saw Revenge of the Sith at midnight. All right? The midnight premiere. I went to it. And... You gotta figure that anybody who's gonna go to the midnight premiere of Revenge of the Sith, we're talking about a Star Wars fan par excellence. Alright, these are people who are in the club. They slurp down the Kool-Aid, you know? They are ready to see this movie. They laughed at that moment. Not with it, at it, you know? And I saw I, I saw Revenge of the Sith at least another two or three times in theaters. I honestly don't think I ever went to a screening of Revenge of the Sith where vast swaths of the audience didn't laugh at that moment, you know? And so it's like, I, you know, I'm, I understand what you're saying, and I think I know what Lucas was going for when, when he structured the scene like that. But, you know, people laughed at it, you know? And it just kind of makes me think, you know, it's well and good for a filmmaker to intend his movie to be taken in a certain way. But sometimes what the filmmaker intends and how the audience actually reacts, 
sometimes they are very different things, and that bit the prequels a lot. So, anyway, whatever you think that's worth. And now that I think about it, I don't think that I made that point about The Phantom Menace. I think I actually made that point about the love story in my Attack of the Clones episode. So, anyway, but yeah, anyway, there you have it. So, I'm rambling here. Uh, Doug continues with, It's a real shame that we won't see him in any future Star Wars films, at least one set during the sequel trilogy and beyond. I look forward to your analysis of arguably the most important film in the Star Wars saga. Signed, Doug. And, again, Doug, first off, thank you for the donation. Thank you for the email. And thank you for the kind words. Um, what I'm hoping is I didn't upset you or disappoint you or anything like that. Because, I mean, ultimately, I, I, I do this show... Sometimes I think I do this show as therapy, to tell you the truth. But, you know, I'm... I do want my listeners to enjoy themselves when they listen, you know, and I, I, I hope I, I hope you enjoyed it. So uh, sometimes that's that's really the most that you can hope for. So anyway, and like I say, I'm just you know fuck it. I'm just gonna put the brakes on all of the uh, the uh, feed forward. That, shit, it's like I know sooner start than more of it starts pop. Okay, you know whatever. I said I'm not gonna do more. I'm not doing more least today. I'm going to come back to this in the future in a time and in a place when I'm not so pissed off about the fact that it's November. So anyway, but you know, Doug, thank you very much. This was, you know, your email and your donation both came along at, um, dude, I'm not kidding, the perfect freaking time for me, uh, you know, in, in terms of, well, just a lot of personal stuff. Like I say, perfect time for both of those things. And I really appreciate you First off, taking the time to do it, but also, you know, uh, just being such a cool guy and always being so friendly and everything on, on, on Facebook and everything. Really appreciate that. It's, uh, uh, I just, uh, you know that I, that I regard you as a friend. So hopefully, hopefully nothing more needs to be said about that. And that, I think, is pretty much it for me uh, when it comes to Revenge of the Sith. And like I say, all of this Revenge of the Sith feed forward that I'm apparently in the process of still receiving will become Revenge of the Sith uh, feedback at some point or another. I know not when, but like I say, that I think is pretty much it for me this week. Now, as to next week, what I'm going to be talking about is more Grant Morrison new X-Men comics, but that's going to be for next week. So I think that's pretty much it for me this week, though. So bye, everybody. I will see you next week. think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks podcast network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. You can friend me on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. 
You can email me and my parole officer at trennismagnus at gmail.com. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? Feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Do you have a podcast of your own? If so, why not record a promo for me to play on my show? It's quick, easy, and can help you spread the word about your show. I'm always looking for more promos to play. Keep it fairly short, and yours could be next. My promos can be found at this show's homepage for those interested. Just look for the promos section. Visit our website at 2TrueFreaks.com. 2TrueFreaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. If you shop at Amazon.com, please consider using the link at 2TrueFreaks.com to shop there. If you use this link to go to Amazon and then you shop, 2TrueFreaks gets a little cut of what you buy and it doesn't cost you anything extra. So you get to shop as usual and help out the Two True Freaks at the same time. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes. And you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law, some assembly required, batteries not included. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus Media Enterprises Limited production in association with Demonzacor of Milan, Italy. Bravo! I loved that. Oh, it was great. Well, it was pretty good. Well, it wasn't bad. Well, there were parts of it that weren't very good, though. It could have been a lot better. I didn't really like it. It was pretty terrible. It was bad. It was awful. I was terrible. Get him away! Hey, boo! Boo!